Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Meg, the host of the channel, and today we are talking to the one and only Julie Rogers about her new book, Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. Julie Rogers, welcome to the show. Hi, Meg. It's so great to meet you. (laughs) Okay, first of all, I follow you on Instagram, and I am curious, where are you recording from today? I am recording. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) I have, I did record uh, recently a podcast, Queerology, which is a great podcast in a bathroom because I was in a, I was in the outrage. I was in the store then, but today I am in my own home in a nice quiet kitchen and everything feels calm. I have coffee. I have water, everything I need. Oh my gosh, yes, everything you need. Okay, perfect. Well, Julie, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Um, Because this book is more memoir, um, maybe start telling us about who you were before Out Love became an idea or your story. Mm, I like that. So I am a, first and foremost, a cat mom. I have... (laughs) My wife, Amanda, and I have two cats named Prince and Toby, and we essentially revolve around them. All of our conversations mm-hmm. are either with them or about them. Um, I am a teaching fellow at this, um, this sort of progressive theological education program called the Faith and Justice Network, and I love it so much. It's a nine-month mm-hmm. fellowship for people who are seeking a more expansive vision of like Christian spirituality and theology. So uh, that's out of based in San Francisco. I love that. It's really fun to be building something up um, in mm-hmm. sort of the theological space that doesn't currently really exist um, or hasn't or didn't exist before. So that's super fun. Um, I. I live in Washington, D.C., and I have an amazing community. My wife, Amanda, is an incredible person, and we're also, like, just part of a broader chosen family here with, like, the best friends imaginable, and I feel super grateful for that and really, like, identify myself. I'm such a, like, community-driven person, so my community is always such a big part Mm -hmm. of my identity, Um, and with that, the queer community and the Christian communities are both such big parts of who I am. And so that's why I wrote Out Love, because that's a, quite a conflict to grow up with. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for the intro. Um, since you opened the door, let's just dive right into Out Love. For those of you who are listening, Out Love, oh, my gosh, it's probably my number one book of the year. So you have to go buy it, support Julie, check it out from the library, buy one for your grandmother, your mom, everybody, your best friend. Okay, so um, you broke this book up into three parts. And it seems like part one is the introduction of your experience as a gay Christian. And 
I want to just read this quote from page five that immediately stopped me in my tracks because, hold on, let me just read it to everybody and then we'll discuss. Okay. So this is Ricky giving a sermon at Living Hope about the prodigal son comparing the lost son to a queer identifying, to the queer identifying Christians in the room. And he says, we serve a father in heaven who longs to throw us a party. All we have to do is come to the end of ourselves and come home. So here's my question for all of you who might be in the far off place tonight. Are you ready to come home? And your response in this book is, in the eyes of my community, I was home. I was denying myself, which meant no sex, love, or intimacy with women. No hand holding, no snuggling, no kissing, no fantasizing, no daydreaming about creating a life with a loving partner. And you go on to say, at what cost? And was it really me who was home or just an image of myself? In the years that follow, I often thought, maybe they just don't understand. Maybe if someone like me told the truth about myself and stayed in the evangelical church, they would see the humanity of queer people and move to embrace us. Maybe we could grow in love together. And just first an observation, most Christian folks, ones that are not connected to the queer community and might take a more conservative lens, they just stop at the sex conversation. And they don't move on to love, intimacy, hand-holding, creating a life with a loving partner. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say thanks for leading us into a deeper narrative right from the start. Mm. So my question for you is how did it, it feel to start to question that community and the leadership for the first time? Very scary. I... I mean, growing up, I was, I was so formed by these evangelical communities where the, mm. they say that the Bible is our ultimate authority, but the Bible can be interpreted in mm-hmm. thousands of different ways, uh, which is why we have over 90,000 denominations mm-hmm. in the United States alone. Um, and mm-hmm. which I like, that's what the internet says. And like Christians say that on the internet too. That sounds <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. But it also is believable if you've hung out with many Christians. Um, So there's a million ways to interpret the Bible. And evangelicals are, you know, they they land on this one interpretation that then the pastor or like authority figure in your community claims to be like the absolute truth. And to question them is to be wrong. It's to be wrong and sinful and misled Mm -hmm. because ultimately like, they're like, well, it's the word. It's not me saying that it's the word of God. And so it felt, I felt like just by beginning to question, like, wait a second, like, is this, is this right? Like I felt shame just by even beginning to ask those Mm -hmm. questions. And I also felt fear that if, if I followed those questions too far, I would lose everyone that I, I loved. Mm. Oh my gosh. Yes. And one thing that I felt throughout all of the book and even just talking with you briefly before we started recording is this sense of earnestness. Like you never were questioning in a way that was devious or trying to prove you're right and they're wrong. You were just earnestly trying to create a safe space mm-hmm. for people like you and and even for Christians to come 
farther into a story of radical love that was more of, along the lines of who Jesus is that you you knew him to be. Hmm. Thank you for seeing that. I I felt that way. I and I it was it was that much harder to then be you know sort of accused of being like divisive or <laughs> deceived yes. or whatever it might be because I did feel like at every point I was just taking one brave step ahead toward what felt like love for the people around me. Love for the most vulnerable was usually what was mm-hmm. motivating me. And yes, it was, it was so hard for that to be misunderstood so much of the time as like giving into my flesh. It was like, I wasn't giving, I, I didn't have like any sex oh from like 22 gosh. to 30. I didn't yes. even like kiss people like <laughs> in my twenties. Yes. So you kiss lady goodbye. Yeah. I was not <laughs> giving into any sort of flesh. Um, and, right. And oh my gosh. So earnest. <laughs> Yes, so earnest. And I feel like you probably had the extra layer, not only as identifying as gay, but being a woman in the church. So even just one of those identities and asking questions in a space where there is no room for questions is difficult. But having like that dual identity of being a woman who is gay just feels even more difficult for you know, leadership to be able to handle or see as like a safe place of growth, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't realize that for a while because I was so, I I was so acutely aware of like the shame I felt for being gay and like the sort of lack of power Mm. that I felt in my body just by being like, however I same sex attracted, whatever I called it, um, that it wasn't like many years later, that I started to be like, oh, wait, what? It's actually, I also am experiencing like, like extra layers of opposition because I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. And I just, it didn't really register until I saw how there were like many gay men were treated in those circles. And I think gay men have Mm -hmm. different layers of uh, challenges because of like ideas around masculinity in American culture, but especially evangelicalism. So I think there are unique challenges, but um, there's a sense in which I I think I was seen as like, you know, the idea of like being, and I talk about this in my book, being in like a a boss's office one-on-one with him where he's asking like where I receive Mm -hmm. accountability for chastity. Like, it's just like this idea that like mm-hmm. inevitably I'm kind of potentially scandalous and need to be. Mm-hmm. And I, that's just a, a really interesting dynamic as a woman one-on-one with a man in like the president's <laughs> yes. office. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. 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 So I have another question for you. Um, this is specifically because I'm a mom and it was really, and even if you're not a parent and you're just sort of an empathetic person, it was really painful to read the section in which you come out to your mom. Um, I think because your mom is so absolutely devastated. I mean, there she is like swollen eyes from crying Bible on her lap, but also because you're apologizing for sharing who you are with her. 
Mm. And as a parent and all the parents listening, you know, can you tell us, this might be a very raw question. So if it's too much, we can edit it out. But can you tell us what you wish that moment would have looked like for you so that those of us who are listening can prepare ourselves to support our kids, you know, in the future? Mm. I I think that there was no, her response was, what I would say, I'm kind of fumbling around. The thing that could have made her, that situation easier on me happened for years Mm -hmm. up to that conversation. And so I Mm -hmm. already brought in so much shame, so much guilt, so much fear that there was really no Mm -hmm. response she could have had that would have alleviated that for me. And so Mm -hmm. the best way to create, to have like a good response to a queer kid coming out is to have made it known that you're a safe and loving parent regardless of who the kid discovers mm-hmm. themselves to be uh, in all the time leading up to it. And so I think making comments along the way of like, um, you know, positive comments about other queer people and about how Jesus loves everyone mm-hmm. and how, you know, that you are excited to continue to hear who they are as they're developing and figuring themselves out and that there's nothing they could say, Mm -hmm. tell you about themselves that would make you love them less. And, you know, just like saying those kinds of things. And yes, I think my, I was apologizing in that moment, not because of anything my mom was saying then it was just because I knew for years leading up Mm -hmm. to it, that this was bad. (laughs) Mm. Oh my gosh. The weight of that as a parent um, is so real. And I love, I love the perspective of just creating a safe space from the beginning and sprinkling in affirmation, no matter who your child is, you know, if they're a little boy and they're more emotional or if they're, you know, presenting queer traits or whatever, and just like being able to be affirming no matter who they're evolving to be from the beginning is just so, so key and so beautiful. Yeah, it really is. I love, I, so like our neighbors, uh, so my wife and I are, are godparents to these two adorable little boys and our neighbors will sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, like their, their son, Leo will, uh, he has like really, really long hair. And so sometimes, I think mm-hmm. because that's what he wants. And they like are like, you can cut it whenever you want. Like, but we're not going to tell you, you need to cut your hair. Like, right. this is just like, you you know, he loves that it's yes. long and flowy. And yes. he, he talks about being a boy. And so, so, but sometimes when they're out and about, people will be like, is, is he a boy? And they're like, as far as we know right now. And just creating that yes. space yes. of like, he'll continue to tell us who he is, uh, you know? And it's... Mm-hmm. I, I just like, it's, I could like weep, um, just hearing those little ways of, of like weaving safety and acceptance into their evolving mm-hmm. process. Um, it's just, it's so special. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I feel like, especially for people who 
are, you know, interested in the Jesus narrative and, and that sort of lane, like that just feels so much like God in Jesus, you know, Mm -hmm. like creating acceptance and safety since the beginning, like that just feels so good and true. And like Jesus. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, toward the end of part one, you have this insane experience with Alan Chambers, who was the previous president of Exodus. And I believe you guys are out to lunch, you know, just meeting and you start to tell him that, oh, let me just read it. Okay. So you start to say, I mean, I still have traditional views of sex and marriage, but this ex-gay stuff doesn't work. I mean, I've been at this for eight years and I'm still like really gay. Ex-gay teaching has pummeled the people I love and they're hooked on meth and cut off from their families and suicidal. It's not okay. And I can't do it anymore. And here's response says, honestly, Julie, I'm sick of this too. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you, I guess, leading up to it and you're encountering people who you've loved along the way who are now struggling in addiction and getting to the point where you're, you're owning for yourself that this feels wrong and to hear Alan say, yeah, I think you're right. I was pretty shocked because up to that point, you know, I had been saying that to people like Ricky and other leaders in my life. And I probably said it to Exodus Mm -hmm. leaders before too, like Alan and the narrative about so many of my friends and queer people who would accept themselves um, and then end up in really like addictive patterns. The narrative was like, well, that's the gay lifestyle. That's they're they're hooked Mm -hmm. on meth because that's what gays do. And they're, you know, wrapped up in these addictions because that's, that's what the deceptive, you know, sort of path they're on. And it, because I didn't know that many queer people and because I wasn't exposed to other ideas and other systems and like affirming Christian communities, I had no way of knowing they were Mm -hmm. wrong. It was just over time. And I think the more... I did. I did begin to have some friends come out over time that went to affirming communities and they were just like way healthier Mm -hmm. and they just kind of were able to date Mm -hmm. in their church and community and like have the supportive structures of, of that. And I was like, huh, well, this is interesting because all the, (laughs) all the gays I know from living hope who, who like move in a different direction are like, you know, not well. Um, and they were kind of in really destructive cycles. Oh my gosh. And so at a certain point, I, it was so hard to trust myself over the leaders, the authority figures mm-hmm. for the reason I brought up at the beginning, but over time I was just like, I, I, I have to, like, I see it, this is wrong. And over and over and mm-hmm. over again, I'm, I like, and I tell some stories in the book about like, I was running into a friend of mine who was homeless and on the streets and hooked on math, right. who like went to Baptist college with me, who was a marathon runner, like a, or triathlete. And I was just like, mm-hmm. there is, this is wrong. There's no, this is not what he wanted. This was not like yes, him being bad and immoral. This is like somebody who's deeply, deeply right. suffering. And we, yes. we, we completely failed him as a community and right. as a, as a, yeah. And so 
I, when I told that to Alan, I expected him to say the line again of like, well, but those people, you know, that's just what happens mm-hmm. when you start to give into the flesh and go to the dark side. And I was really mm-hmm. shocked that he was like, mm-hmm. I'm starting to hear these stories too. And I think that, I think this is really damaging and I think it needs to end. And he was like, would you be up for, you know, sticking around for another year and helping me write some of these wrongs? <laughs> Which freaking blows my mind. I think just in my own personal experience, you know, I've heard those same narratives that, the flesh always leads to death. And there's so many scriptures that are used out of context to say, you know, X, Y, and Z is bad, but specifically sexual immorality and all these things. And when I moved to the Philadelphia area and started getting connected to more lesbians who were Christian and seeing like, wow, these these women are living successful, amazing lives with loving partners and they love God. And Mm -hmm. I think one thing that I've realized is that in the evangelical communities, you can so easily get isolated, especially when leadership is telling you a narrative and you trust that narrative. And then the real way that I've learned to to see outside of that narrative is like stepping out of it. And even just stepping into a different church culture is almost shame inducing because, you know, we're told that this is a church that has the monopoly on truth. Every other truth, every other church is led astray and wrong. And I think it's just so refreshing reading through your book, your, your experience, you just name so much of, of the process. And yeah, it was just so comforting to read that after, you know, having my own similar experience of meeting queer Christians who are living amazing lives and they're not (laughs) hooked on drugs and they're not struggling in their lives. I just was, yeah, so excited to read that. I do not Um, do drugs for the record. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, see, exactly. And I mean, I work in addictions medicine um, in the Philly area and I would say one of the things that I've seen as a common denominator is just it's never a sexuality issue. It's it's a hard life and acceptance issue. It's trauma. Know? Yeah, absolutely. It's trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you go on to say when you're in L.A. in a group of ex-gay survivors, I think you're in a church basement, which feels very AA to me and like wonderful. I just love that <laughs> that's where they're meeting. Um, you have a moment where you finally own for yourself that you you were also abused by this same system. Um, was that like slowly revealing itself or was it someone in that group that like what they said was exactly your experience and it triggered this ownership for you? I don't think there was a moment so much as it was the culmination of several years of therapy for one and mm-hmm. several mm-hmm. years of sort of reflection and grappling with with my own this the sort of the ways that my like self-harm and eating disorder and these mm-hmm. things I was beginning to see the connection between those and the the sort of shame inducing environments I was in. 
and how they were really mm-hmm. like uh, responses to trauma and, and they were like coping mechanisms. Right. And I think as I was listening to these other people, there was, you know, there was one guy who I remember, I remember him saying, I, I lost my soul by trying to do the right thing not doing Mm. the wrong thing. And he was saying like through conversion therapy, through Exodus, through his systems, like he, he lost everything by trying so hard to be good. And I was like, gosh, like Mm. that is like that, like that's what we've been, we've been trying so hard to do good. And that's why we're so broken for lack of a better word. And, and like, Mm. um, Mm -hmm. So there was something about just like the whole experience that when I was driving back to my hotel that night, I drove for 30 minutes in the wrong direction because I was just so disoriented. Oh my gosh. I know, right? I was so yes. disoriented and I I just knew like I I just I just knew that they were telling my story too. And I mm. I think I I wasn't as angry as they were and as outraged, but I was mm-hmm. beginning to think like, maybe I'm just not as honest with myself as they are. Oh my gosh. Whoa. That's a moment right there. Right. Oh, okay. So, um, section two of your book, this seems to be like the real meat of your unlearning. Like section one is talking about your experience being the speaker and that mouthpiece for the XK theology. And then towards the end, it's, you know, kind of unraveling, but I feel like section two is where you're really in the midst of owning yourself in a new way, like fully embracing who you are. Um, and I just can't even believe like your experience at Wheaton, um, is really interesting because in the, in the book, you're saying, for a lot of the book, you're still supporting traditional views of marriage. But when you start to work at Wheaton, it seems like you're more at ease with yourself and other queer people. And it seemed like your agenda changed from advancing the ex-gay narrative to accepting and loving students. Um, how did that experience when you first you know, stepped into your role at Wheaton and meeting with these students who were, you know, identifying as queer, but also trying to love God and other people, how did that experience help you accept and love yourself? I, I was really operating in my sweet spot in that role. And uh, I have always, even when I was in ex-gay circles, I still felt Mm -hmm. like my, my goal was to make life more bearable for people who were vulnerable Mm -hmm. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to sensitize Christians to some of these basic ideas that we didn't choose to be that way and we couldn't change it. And trying to sort of like call upon compassion, even if they still believed we were like sinning. Mm -hmm. And even if I still believed that we were sinning. And, And then also creating safe places from within. So when people would, you know, quote unquote, act out and have like a sexual fall when I was at Living Hope. That was how we referred to it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Being a safe place to Mm -hmm. be like, hey, you're human. And there was probably tenderness in that too. And like, maybe you don't Mm -hmm. need to be so hard on yourself. And, and so I was always kind of doing that in like an underground way. 
it was really, it was really cool to be at Wheaton where as much as it was an experiment that didn't work out because of the public criticism and the public sort of Wheaton's concern mm-hmm. with like managing their image. But in my actual mm-hmm. role as a, as, a, as a chaplain at Wheaton and being openly gay, it was so powerful to get to just all day long meet with students who were finally sort of finding the safe place to tell the truth about themselves often for the first time. And mm-hmm. to feel like, because I was, yeah. I was openly gay at a, on a college campus that was fairly hostile toward queer people that, mm-hmm. that they might be seen and that they might be like known in that place. And it was, it was just so beautiful to get to bear witness to like student after student after student in their vulnerability at a place where there's such high expectations to be perfect. And mm-hmm. um, I think like I, I was, I felt like such almost like maternal instincts and just like, these are precious yes. kids. And like, you know, over my dead body, are you going to throw them under the bus (laughs) to manage your image? Like, like, no, absolutely not. And it it brought out that I'm such a, I'm an Enneagram nine. I'm such a peacemaker. I, oh my gosh. Yes. Always going to lean toward being conciliatory, but not when, not when it's Mm -hmm. harming really vulnerable, special, extraordinary people. And so, um, Mm. so it just really, brought that into clear focus and gave me, I think the courage I needed to stand up to people who were causing that harm. Oh my gosh. Yes. I love that. And I'm just going to say this, I'm not evangelical anymore, but that just feels so holy, you know, like that protective and fierce side of, no, we're not going to, we're not going to support the powerful protecting an image in order for these children, you know, like we need mm-hmm. to protect these kids who are vulnerable and no, we will not be quiet. Like, I think that is just so beautiful. Um, and it seems like at Wheaton when that is happening and now you're on like the payroll of this evangelical Harvard, if you will, you are being talked to by the president. It seems like you're hearing the ways that Wheaton and its leadership are more concerned with the feelings of their evangelical supporters or donors than the vulnerable queer students. And I just felt like this, this is one of the biggest issues that I see in Christianity today is the way that we turn our eyes away from vulnerable populations to look at power and protect our image. And mm-hmm. I, I was just so blown away to see it so clearly articulated in your experience. Mm. Yeah, it was eye opening. It was, I, it changed me. You know, I went in, I kind of talk about the evolution in the book about how I went in assuming the best about the people in leadership and, assuming they were right and the ways that they mm-hmm. described uh, queer students as kind of like antagonistic and oh, yes. conniving. And, and then you see yes. over the course of the year, my 
my sympathies really shift. And sympathies doesn't feel like the right mm-hmm. word because it feels emotionally driven, which is, is part of it. But right. it but my my trust, my like the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. the the sense mm-hmm. of like who's who is righteous, whose cause felt righteous. Right. Um, oh my gosh. Almost like shifting. your allegiance is to this yeah. community. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I, I came out of the I year really, transformed. It's it yeah, I just really loved how you it's almost like you humanized both groups. Like evangelical leaders are often portrayed with almighty power given by God. And it's usually straight white men. But the way that you humanize them, they're actually causing harm. We have to name the ways in which this behavior is not okay and these people are being hurt. And queer people aren't demons. They're not like dirty, rotten pieces of trash. They're humans and they're actually being harmed by Christian leadership. I just thought that was so profound the way that you are humanizing both groups because I think when it comes to hot topic issues, there's such a, an extreme view on things that you mm. really grounded us in the story. Mm. Thank you. That's what I tried really, really hard to do. <laughs> so I'm really... Yes, it came through. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, all right. So for part three, I just felt like this section was the exhale. Yeah. Like part one was figuring it out. Part two was the struggle. And then part three came this like maybe a little ragged, but like this beautiful exhale on the other side. You got the job outside of the church. You're making friends. And then you begin your life with Amanda, which... We love, and I just would, I would like to hear a little bit about um, just your, your wrestling match, because throughout most of the book, you have a traditional view of sex and marriage, and what was that like coming to the point where you allowed yourself to fall in love and begin a partnership with a woman? I'm really glad that I spent so long wrestling with my convictions around that because by the time mm-hmm. I was, did meet Amanda and begin like a relationship with her, I never for a moment questioned whether or not it was right or pleasing to God mm. or beautiful. Like from the very beginning, it was just like, this is mm-hmm. obviously so right And it's such a relief to Mm. finally just be here. And it's totally fine if people out and about recognize me and see me with her because like I stand by this a million times over. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that I was able to sort of do that from a place of integrity. I don't, I mean, integrity, meaning like mm-hmm. in, in, as an integrated person, not integrity. I don't mean that in a moral way. Yes. I don't think there's anything right immoral about people entering into relationships and not being sure about their convictions. But I think it, it, st- it leads right. to still such um, dislike. Yeah. Like it, 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 such a fragmented person. If we have to, if we really believe we're sinning by nature of, being yes. with somebody we love, that's uh, going to really 
tear apart a person and cause them to sort of like ward off entire parts of, of their, of themselves and not be able to bring that into the relationship. So it was really great to, and I was thankful to be with Amanda and the way that she understood how fresh, freshly out I was of those circles and Mm -hmm. was totally willing to like take things slowly and to like, I'm sure mm-hmm. she thought it was super weird that I hadn't like kissed anybody in <laughs> my, you know, a decade, but that yeah. she was not just like, obviously we're adults and we're going to like jump in bed the first night, you know? Um, right, it was really, right. it was really, uh, it was really just really special and really sweet and really safe. And I'm thankful for that. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I just think one of the things about your book that felt so eye-opening was just how long it took through reading the book to to get to the point where you met Amanda and you were able to be okay with that. And I thought that was just so honest and eye-opening because I think from an outsider perspective, it can seem like no one really knows how long the process takes to like accept yourself totally the Christian community as a queer person. And I thought, wow, Julie, this is so honest and beautiful. And yeah, like I was so grateful to see the way in which you shared your struggle for being, it was a long struggle of deconstructing these narratives that you held onto for so long and creating a strong foundation for you to be safe in your body and with yourself. Mm-hmm. It, like when I was rereading the book and one of the, the editing phases, I remember reading it and being like somewhere toward the end of section two and just like, Jesus Christ, Julie, like, I like, just <laughs> accept yourself. Like we just need some, we just need some relief here because yes. like you just keep trying like new iterations yes. of this, like, total self-hatred and it is such yes. a relief to finally get to a place where I'm just like free. Oh, yes. And I just, yeah, I cannot express enough. Everyone should read this book mm-hmm. just for that part alone. I remember I was telling everybody I know about this book and I was in a group chat with some friends and they were like, Oh, give me some of your takeaways. And I had been like, you know, two thirds of the way through the book and I was saying some of my highlight reel. And then I was like, that's also, I'm just so blown away by the honesty of how long the process is in the book. Like you really take us through the process. And I love that because I don't think we give queer Christians enough credit for how hard the work is, how long the struggle is, how brave it is to accept themselves, you know, when the whole world is saying, or their whole world, if they're part of the evangelical community, is saying they're sinful. So I just really respected that and appreciated that. Thank you. It's true. It's okay, true. So the most I earnest. <laughs> yes. Our, yes, I agree. Our, our, um, our community, like we queer folks, are just the most earnest and like queer Christians. And I think um, mm-hmm. they... I always say like that we deserve a PhD, like an honorary PhD in like (laughs) the studies we've done around this because it's like we get like we're digging deep into like 
hermeneutics and like learning freaking mm-hmm. Greek and Hebrew and doing like yes. everything we possibly can, yes. like getting into psychology, getting into like every side, so- like every single thing to really try to find our way. And yes, um, yes. it's just any person who comes out in, in like Christian Christian communities is so brave. It's so, so brave. And it's so hard fought, mm-hmm. hard won. And I'm just, I have, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I just love my people. Yes. Oh, they're so good. Uh, okay. Well, if you could leave us with one final thought now that the book is out into the wild and we're obviously obsessing over it, what would it be? I hope people will read it with a real sense of curiosity and openness. I think the people who I really hope will be moved by it, it, you know, you can come to a book with a preconceived, like already having made up your mind that it's like wrong. <laughs> and I hope mm-hmm. that they'll come to mm-hmm. it genuinely open for like a human encounter because that's what books do. They allow us to encounter humans on like a deep, almost like get, get a window into their inner life uh, who we otherwise wouldn't get to encounter in that way. And if we're closed off before we meet them, then we miss out. Mm -hmm. And so I think like, I hope people will, will engage it with like genuine curiosity and openness. And I hope people will, um, allow themselves to identify with the, the human story of it, even if they're not queer, even if they're, they have different mm-hmm. experiences. There's so much, um, there are so many ways that we're all trapped inside of performing a certain image that mm. we think we need to be or version of ourselves to belong in our communities. And I hope that the story will, will, will create a sense of freedom and safety for other people to, to bring their whole selves forward in ways that maybe they hadn't thought they could before. Well, Julie, geez, uh, that is perfect. Um, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, but before I let you go, will you let us know what you're working on now? So I'm, I'm featured in a documentary called Pray Away that it's, it's going to release on Netflix on August 3rd, which is soon and super exciting. Yes, and yes it is. <laughs> it's about, it's about uh, my experience in conversion therapy, and it's a lot of the leader, former leaders of Exodus International. And mm-hmm. it is really powerful. And there's also, because it's on Netflix and it's in like over 200 million homes around the world, uh, it's a real opportunity to be able to, um, to mm. like make a big, big difference in Christian communities mm-hmm. around the world who, uh, whose primary response to queer people who come out is to try to encourage them to change their orientation. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm doing a lot around that right now in preparation for that to come out. And otherwise, um, lots of butt- riding my bike and like loving my cats and enjoying the summer post being vaccinated. Um, yeah. Yes. Living Get a full life. everybody. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. I am so honored that I got to interview you and I cannot wait to continue to support your work and to 
share this with the world and also watch Pray Away and share that with the world as well. So thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks so much, Meg.